we're not reading the Bible through Jesus and we're taking everything as equal and giving everything uh, the same weight and taking it at its face value, the Bible's an incoherent text. How can you say, listen to the cries of the poor without looking at what makes them poor? You don't have to believe certain things to be part. The irony is that you can be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-military, anti-environment, and still say you're pro-life. But people get really uncomfortable. It's like they want to have their religion and they want to have their porn. They want to do both. I don't think any form of Christianity deserves to survive and thrive if it doesn't come to terms with the racism of our past. When we really tell the story of Jesus, we find a God who comes to the point where it has all collapsed. If a good teacher is to get a student to get the right answers on the test, and if Jesus was supposed to get us to get the right answer for when we die, then can we just be honest and say, not a good teacher? Fall is upon us, and we're back into the normal routines that we're used to, and let one of those normal routines be your health and wellness. Who better to help you with that than Angie Niska with Rise Nutrition? You can reach out to her on Facebook at Rise Menominee, and she'll get you started accomplishing all of your health and wellness goals. Again, that's Angie Niska with Rise Nutrition. Hey friends, I'm your host, Matt Kinzera. Today, a podcast that has challenged me more than any other episode to date as I talk about falling in love, having children, staying put, and saving the planet with Frank Schaefer. Thank you so much for inviting me to this podcast. You know, you and I have spent a little time together, so you know that I come from an evangelical background, what the New York Times once called evangelical royalty. And they did that when they wrote an essay about me on my way out of the evangelical community, saying that it was basically like a member of an evangelical royalty committing treason against his own family. So my background is fraught when it comes to the subject of religion and family, and um kind of thumbnail sketch working backwards. Um, Today, you know, just before we did this podcast here, I was playing with my seven-year-old granddaughter, Nora. I had fed her lunch. I do childcare for three of my five grandchildren. And uh, if you roll the clock back a little further, I raised three kids in this same house, been in the same building for 41 years now with Jeannie, who I've been married with for 51 years, got her pregnant when we were teenagers. She was 17 and 18. And we chose to do this in the middle of a fundamentalist evangelical commune in Switzerland called Brie Fellowship, started by my parents. So my experience of life is as a writer of maybe 13, 14 books, uh, a movie maker that made a series of documentary films with my father, Francis Schaeffer, a famous evangelical theologian. Uh, How should we then live on the history of culture? Whatever happened to the human race that is really credited, if you want to put it that way, with starting the evangelical wing of the anti-abortion movement. My life is a family man, a married man, a father, a grandfather that does hands-on childcare for little kids, a writer, uh, someone who repented of and regrets my involvement in the religious right and everything that came from that, and now has written a book called Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, a deliberately provocative title by taking very traditional themes and playing them out in a very untraditional way, talking about a whole different view of family life than the one that we were pitching back in the 70s and 80s 
as part of the anti-abortion movement that was really just kind of a repackaged misogyny. So I know that's a little all over the place, but I hope it gives people a flavor of the experience of my life I bring to the table in talking to you today and our friendship, but also writing this book. Yeah. Thanks so much, Frank. I appreciate that. And I want to spend most of our time talking about the new book because it's it's phenomenal in so many ways. And as I was already telling you, an unbelievable challenge to a person like myself, which I'll share a little bit more as we get going. But so many of the listeners of this show and, and myself also were people that came out of an evangelical background or even a background with fundamentalism as you did in very, what I would call extreme ways. So do you mind just for all of us who are either in that process or slowly after that process, share just a little bit of your journey of how you got from this place where you're doing documentaries with your father to the place where now you're repenting for some of that work that you did? Yeah. Well, you know, a few years ago, I wrote a little book called Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God. And the ambivalence and paradox of that title was very deliberate because I'm not someone who fled the evangelical community and then became an atheist. In fact, that book came out of a correspondence and series of conversations with the famous atheist author Christopher Hitchens, who wrote all sorts of books for what were then called the New Atheist Movement. He he read a memoir of mine called Crazy for God, and we had several conversations on the phone about it. He liked the book very much. He got in touch with me, and he said, the only shame is, is I finished the book and find that you're still someone who describes yourself as a person of faith. You're not an evangelical anymore, but why aren't you one of us? And so I wrote this little book, Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God, as a kind of a response to Chris and and people on the religious side who were saying the same thing. It was really funny. I got got emails from evangelicals who knew my family back in the day, long before I left, and from my atheist friends, and they both said the same thing. You know, why haven't you joined, clearly joined us or clearly stayed with us? And I guess it's because my spiritual journey out of evangelicalism over the last 35, 40 years could really be described as one thing, and that is the discovery of paradox and the comfort level I have with uncertainty rather than a series of theological belief systems where you have to be certain or you are not quote unquote saved. And when you flip it and you get to the new atheist movement, they speak in exactly the same language. They look for converts. If you're not completely atheistic, if you have any kind of spiritual life at all, you are on the outside, et cetera. So essentially, I have rebelled against the false certainties of all theological and or secular descriptions of ultimate meaning and purpose. And what I'm left with is a different belief system entirely, which basically, as I talk about in my new book, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy. If you want to be happy, you've got to get your life in tune, not with Jesus, not with atheist philosophy. You've got to get your life in tune with the way we evolved to be most content. It's a completely different way of looking at life. Now, the funny thing is a lot of what science discovers overlaps paradoxically with what religion then codified, for instance, caring for those around us. You know, the reason that resonates with us is not because Jesus said it, it's because the only reason any of us are here is that people through the eons of our ancestral village have cared for others. You know, you're here, Matt, because someone that you didn't know 10,000 years ago found a baby lying by a trail, and instead of picking the baby up and taking it home for lunch, they took that child home and cared for her. I'm here because 
100,000 years ago, some primates shared a piece of fruit and, uh, uh, you know, in, back in the ancestral village. None of us are here because of the survival of the fittest. We are here because of the survival of the friendliest. And the argument I'm making in my book is that if we want to live lives that are content, for instance, give one example, then we're not going to put as much emphasis on career advancement and money as we will on the human relationships in our life that define us. That's a real basic. And that has nothing to do with the New Testament or religion or philosophy. That has to do with who we are as biological creatures, how we evolve. We evolve to care for each other. We all evolve to be mothers, as it were. And I'm not using that in a gendered sense. Um, and that includes my unmarried son, uh, who's a teacher. He mothers his students. That includes your relationship with me right now on this podcast, Matt, in the kindness you were doing me by helping me promote my book and introduce it to people. You are mothering me right now. I'm not alone this afternoon. I am with you because you care enough about me to share my ideas with people who listen to you. And so, uh, you know, what I'm arguing for in the new book is that we're looking for meaning in the wrong places when it comes to what Wall Street career and, um, you know, your, your local university is telling you in terms of a career path, get that master's degree before you settle down. Be careful you don't have kids too young or they'll take you away from your career. All the moms and dads out there who have to lie all the time and minimize their family so they look professional. You can't say, oh, I got to leave because I'm doing a school pickup. You pretend you're going to an important meeting. So my book is a rebellion against the falsehood of what I would call fake family values, whether those are secular and corporate to fulfill shareholder dreams of profits or whether they are religious or whatever else. And this is what I've come to, I guess, as a guy pushing 70 now and wish I had known earlier so I would have been a better father uh, and more caring and spend less time on the road, et cetera, et cetera. So this book is about human values that are rooted in evolution and then often mirrored in spiritual teachings, which actually came long after the evolutionary process, uh, but nevertheless, that make us happy if we tune into them. When you talk about caring for in the context of our culture here in America, mm -hmm. it's at best a lost art form or at worst, maybe something we've never been able to do since the inception of this country. And but in so many ways, it frames all that is good. Right. And I was listening to a TED talk a couple of weeks ago, and they talked about the two times when you're really honest in life are before you're five years old. And then when you get a little bit later in life and you just stop caring about what people think about you. Mm -hmm. And you are at this place where in where you're in life, where you're starting something that I dream about, which is really being able to see clearly what truly matters in this world. I'm at a place in my life where I fight every day the desire to want a further career or go on the road or do that speaking event or do this, that, and the other. And it is honestly because of what I've grown up in, which is this high succeed culture. Mm -hmm. And I was a musician growing up. So I knew, and I went to school for it. And so I knew that if I was going to succeed, I had to work to be the best. So I'd be on the road as much as possible. And the idea of family was so unbelievably secondary that even now I'm in my mid forties, it's a real, this, this relationship thing, this caring for piece is so, so difficult for me. So I know it up here in my mind and I even know it quite a bit in my heart that it's right. 
But the reason that this book has been so good and special for me is because finally somebody like yourself is putting some real words and real even science behind it, which is helpful for me then to walk forward in my own life with my wife and my two kids and friends around me to try to do better at raising my children or just being with my children. Staying put as like an Enneagram seven is the most difficult thing for me in the world. Saving the planet is something that I want to do. Be happy is, uh, is a space that's elusive to so many of us. So all that to say, everybody get your hands on this book and, and read it because it's something I think all of us can gain uh, a lot from just because it's so countercultural. Now, I don't want to miss the fact that this book is framed by your conversations with your granddaughter, Lucy. So tell us a little bit about Lucy and then also tell us a little bit about your relationship with her. Well, you know, I started this book six years ago. And now it's just come out uh, a day or so ago. Um, But I thought it was going to be about a year and a half project. And it came out of the fact that I was doing childcare for her after she was born uh, while living in my house for two years with her parents. Her dad, John, had been a Marine and fought in Afghanistan, came back, went to the University of Chicago. Without being maudlin or too Oprah-esque, I can just tell you that, you know, when you have a son who enlists into the Marine Corps out of high school... Uh, fights twice in in Afghanistan, once in Iraq, and comes back alive, then gets married, settles down in your neighborhood, moves into your house with you after college for a couple of years. Your relationship with the child that comes out of that marriage is poignant. All my relationships with all five grandchildren are very meaningful to me, but Lucy, as the firstborn in John's family of three, was kind of like an answer to prayer. Instead of two Marines in dress blue uniforms coming down the drive in a van to tell me my son was dead, as happened to people I knew, by the way, as a Marine parent during those wars. Instead of that, a beautiful young wife came back to my house after delivering this child in the hospital and literally put that baby into my arms. And I cannot tell you the kind of rebaptism and rebirth that happened in my own life uh, 13 years ago. Lucy, by the way, turned 13 this year. So Lucy lived in the house for the first two years, and then her parents put together enough money-wise to move across the street into their own place, literally just across the street, had two more children, Jack and Nora, who people will also meet in the book. And I changed my whole life around because rather than just helping out a little around the edges, I kept working as a writer, but I got off the road. I sort of did my own COVID-19 five years before anybody else did, literally didn't do any more speaking at all. I think if you check back, you'd find maybe three or four engagements in a five-year period, as opposed to me doing 20 or 30 speaking things, mostly at universities, in the years before that. So basically, I took an early retirement and from that part of my life and realized that I had been given a second chance to be a parent, to be a mother, to be a caregiver. You know, something I want to point out very quickly on the way through, when I talk about fall in love, have children, stay put, save the planet, I'm not talking about fall in love as necessarily in a traditional pair bonded relationship. I am not talking about having children, even in the literal sense of bearing a child or getting a woman pregnant. I am talking about making everyone in the human family your child. So working back from what I learned with Lucy over these years, and I talk about in the book in these little things that I write to her to tell her about her own childhood and what we did together, interspersed with the science of 
oxytocin and love and brain hormones and how we actually fall in love and why love is actually a process that's biological to make us into parents and to caregivers. All of that is in the book. Um, but I started basically just taking these notes when Lucy was little because I didn't want to forget. It was meaning too much to me. One example, I didn't want to forget how when my mom was dying and we were talking uh, on Skype in those days, she was in Switzerland, we were in the States, she was with my sister in Switzerland where they were living. Um, and I had gone back and visited numerous times, often thinking actually she was going to die while I was with her, but it didn't work out that way. And so Lucy at age three would sit on my lap and we would talk to her, this far distant grandmother. And uh, when my mom died, uh, uh, soon before I told Lucy, I was very sad at what was happening, that I was going to lose my mother. And this little three-year-old girl put her arms around my neck and said, but you still have me. Now, in that sentence, but you still have me, is the actual meaning of life, in case anybody listening wants to know what it is. It is the ability to say to someone, you still have me, or receive that from another. When you take that out of the equation, you can be the chairman of the board of any bank. You can start Google in your garage and become a zillionaire. You can build a rocket and fly around like Jeff Bezos does. But if you don't have those words in your life, but you still have me, either given or received, you've missed the entire point of human existence. So I would take care of Lucy and then get up earlier every day. So before she was up, I could be writing this. And I put some of the notes I write to her in it about our life together. But the essence of fall in love, have children, stay put, save the planet, be happy is not a conservative vision of a pair bonded, you know, white heterosexual relationship, which I happen to be in. And I'm very privileged and at the same time, very spoiled and very undeserving. And I make that clear in the book. It's an argument for the common human theme that can be experienced by everyone and how to make that work for all of us, both as a legislative agenda, say a minimum wage that means that a single mom doesn't have to work three jobs, or if she's a woman of color, work for some rich lady having a fancy career and get paid dirt. And it is for people who are unattached and unpair bonded at all but who want a strong relationship with the rest of the human family to live intentionally in community and not just chase job and money and career. It is for students in colleges that are in love but don't dare have a relationship because some idiot is telling them they need to get their career set first or a master's degree or something. And the purpose of the book is really clear. And that is that I would like it to play a small part in a, in a huge post-COVID rebellion that really was exemplified by the lockdowns when you had all kinds of parental people discovering that they were home with their kid and you have executives and corporations, female and male, who can no longer pretend they don't have families because now they're at home with them. You have toddlers running through the Zoom meeting, et cetera. The, 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 the veil was pulled back in terms of the human condition. And in the same way that there were less jet trails and the water cleared up for a little bit, there was a glimpse of another way of living. The funny thing is a lot of people who got a glimpse of this now are refusing to go back to the way they were. So Google had to threaten their employees saying, if you don't come back to the office full time, we're gonna do a pay cut. Other companies have done the same thing to people because they understand the threat of giving people a little taste. Hey, the sky didn't fall. I was home with my kid. It felt natural. The sky didn't fall. I changed jobs or didn't work for a while. And it felt good because I wasn't so pressed and so busy, I had time. But COVID gave us this great opportunity to look at everything and just say, hey, let's put all the cards on the table and be honest about this. And that's uh, hopefully what, what the book does. Yeah. One of my fears with COVID is simply that 
we had this great opportunity for pause. Just about everybody other than a lot of people in the medical field got an opportunity to experience that. Most people, as you already alluded to, most people saw that as a very positive thing because they got to engage more honestly and authentically in spaces, including their family, but relationships in general that they weren't able to before. My fear a little bit with where we're at now, although you know we, we have this new wave coming, and so this, this may be a little bit farther out than I think a lot of us hoped, but as soon as they started doing things like changing the mask mandate, there was it felt like this push in America to just allow everything to go back to normal. And I think that's the worst case scenario is that we act as if we didn't have that time of pause to actually realize what was important and go back to life as normal. So what would be maybe your challenge or encouragement to all of us, uh, you know, regarding the danger of going back to, to normal as we used to see normal, how do we transition back into life post COVID in a way that's healthier and better for us and creates a better humanity? Well, I'll answer this question in a little bit of an odd way. There will be no post-COVID. Welcome to the future. Just as there's going to be no post-climate change. This is where we live. You've made your bed, now lie on it. That's the message that nature has sent us with both COVID and climate change. And so the real issue is this. When are we going to realize that we're in a moment of historical crisis? And that the only way to resolve this is to start putting relationships and the quality of people's lives ahead of career, because it's all those big fancy careers that have wrecked the planet. And the materialistic quest of consumerism is killing us, quite literally. The politicizing of what should be no-brainers, like mask wearing or getting a vaccine, is killing us. I mean, how ironic that evangelical white, quote, pro-life Christians led the charge against the vaccine and basically slowed down what would have been a genuine uh, wrapping up of the first phases of COVID that President Biden initiated. That if everybody had gone out and got their shots and done exactly what the president said, because we lucky few here in America actually had access to enough of the Pfizer vaccine to do that, you know how lucky we were. And it was thrown away by the people who I helped shape in the 70s and 80s with my father, Francis Schaefer, and turn into a political juggernaut, some of whom stormed the Capitol a little while back, many of whom resisted the vaccine, not because they know anything about science, but because they'd rather believe mythology on Facebook and lies from an anti-vax lunatic fringe than the truth, not because they really care about that in particular, but because it was a way to stick it to liberals, to own the libs. And they saw not wearing a mask as a kind of a middle finger to science-based thinking, university, urban America. And the tragedy of the religious right turning into an anti-mask, anti-vaccine group. So how ironic that the background I came from became, as it were, so anti-family in the true sense of the word of literally killing families based on this kind of false politics. So when I look at my own history and my culpability within that, it makes the message of fall in love, have children, stay put, save the planet, be happy, even more urgent, which is A, science is real. Science doesn't get everything right, but it's factual when it does. The needless deaths by not getting the vaccine are very, very comparable to people going back to usual too soon by saying, hey, what's the most important thing in America? It's the gross national product. Let's get the GDP going again. Let's look at what's happening on Wall Street. That's what we will measure everything by. 
not the quality of life and happiness. The real point is we've got to make a, a choice, and that is, are we willing to redefine the American definition of success? Are we willing to start saying someone is successful who treats people in a certain way? Someone is successful who leaves behind a record of happy, successful relationships that, that are true mothering experiences for everybody who's involved with them? Or are we simply all about making money and defining ourselves by career? And so as we look at a world beyond COVID, it's not going to be coming back to normal. So the issue is going to be within that context, who is going to be happier or better? My little tribe, Nora, Jack, and Lucy know where I can be found at any time, day or night, that I will always care for them, that I fix food for them after school. You know, is that a better start for them than, say, being left alone because I'm so busy pursuing my career? You know, weirdly, science backs this up. So the Berlin study, which I cite in the book on grandparenthood in the chapter on grandparenthood, found that a stronger indication of longevity then even whether you are a smoker or have diabetes is whether in old age you are involved full-time in childcare. It's the single, it's the single greatest indicator of longevity. It adds five to seven years to the average life. It actually has more impact than quitting smoking. Why is that healthy? Because Jesus said something? No, because obviously we have evolved in the ancestral village to each have a place within the human community what can somebody do when they're not running around chopping down trees or hunting deer anymore or growing crops? They, they can sit there and take care of a child. And the weird thing is it infuses their life with a level of meaning and involvement that all the Alzheimer's research talks about in terms of staying engaged, blah, 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 blah. We use all those words. Well, the best way to stay engaged is to be surrounded by young people and help out in their lives. The best thing for a young person in terms of psychological stability on the suicide chart scale, the single greatest guarantor of a, of a healthy mental health childhood that is balanced is a, wait for it, a strong relationship with a grandparent. Every single study shows that. If you want to live a long, happy life, get in tune with, with your evolutionary ancestral village and don't pretend it didn't happen that way. Last question here. And you've kind of, you've already answered it throughout what you've been saying for this whole interview, but we are here, you know, we're in this space that we're at in America and the way that you talk seems to be a fair distance from there, yet it's so appealing and so interesting and, and it draws you towards it just by listening to some of the things that you're saying. What is step one in getting us from where we're at in general as a society to this dream that you share in your new book? Well, you know, this sounds a little bit like I'm being a smart ass here, but the first step is to do it. So it's like saying, it's like reading a, a novel about somebody falling in love. What is step one with falling in love? Not closing your eyes to the possibility. Are you going to get there in one step? No. But the first step is not, can we change the entire legislative agenda of Congress or elect presidents who think this way? The first step is, I have a girlfriend. She lives in Milwaukee. I am moving to California because I can get a pay raise from Google. Do I do it? when I know I'm going to jeopardize that relationship and it's a very meaningful one, or am I going to say, you know what, to hell with the career, I can still earn a living even though it's a little less money, doing something a little less interesting, but I'm going to put loving Michelle ahead of all this other shit. Start there. It's the grandparent who says, I'm sick of shoveling snow. I think I'll move to Florida and then says, you know what, 
how's my daughter-in-law really going to cope? And, and what sort of a shot does she have when I've been helping with the childcare and now I'm just booking it? How do we start? We start by changing fashion. We make it cool for males and non-binary people and gay adoptive parents to stay home with young children instead of dropping screaming kids off at daycare who beg their mommy and daddy to stay and explaining to them that uh, you're not staying because you're working for a company that maybe even does offer some time off, but you're not demanding it because you want to advance your career faster. It's changing the policy of private institutions like Massachusetts General Hospital and walking in and saying, yeah, I know I'm in my second year of of, uh, thoracic surgery residency. Guess what? I'm taking three years off and I'm going to sue your ass if I can't come back and pick up where I left off after doing three years at home with my child. And the biggest thing of all is changing fashion. Look, in my lifetime, it was okay, and I never did, thank God, but it was okay to tell racist jokes in polite company. There, you could use the N-word. In my lifetime, there were people who were using the N-word and never had to apologize. My point being, one of the big things we can do is to change the fashions and change what's cool. We have to genuinely show by example that the coolest thing to do is not jump off the top of a cliff or extreme skiing or ride a hundred foot wave, that it is just as cool to be a male working for Google and take two years off and say, and now I'm going to be with my kid and I'm going to help my wife do this. Um, it It is just as cool to look at sexuality as a serious business that develops within a monogamous relationship, whether you're gay or straight or anybody else, and and put an effort into it that keeps the glue intact of your relationship and holds your family together. We have to change. We have to change the idea of what it is cool to do. The fashions have to change. The legislation has to change. And the funny thing is, once we get this going in our own lives first, and then helping other people realize this, it is going to work because what I've said in my book is true. We will actually be happier. And you know, you see some amazing examples of that. For instance, David Letterman. He's this single hotshot, unattached guy, most successful person on late night TV ever after Johnny Carson. Years later, he commits adultery on a new relationship. His wife almost divorces him. He goes back, he apologizes publicly. They have a child. Now you listen to to him and he's got guests like George Clooney or even Howard Stern, the shock radio guy, saying, you know, we all have one thing in common. We've discovered that being a father and working for a relationship with a woman that works. Wow. We wish we had known this earlier. We've thrown away a whole chunk of our lives chasing shit. And now we actually have our, our, our things together. We suddenly see that that was all bullshit. So there's a lot of people out there. You know, when I started this book, I didn't see this, but now I see column after column, op-ed after op-ed, opinion piece after opinion piece, everywhere, Vanity Fair, you know, the New Yorker, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, touch wherever you want across the board. There are column after column after column you will see of people saying, hey, jobs aren't what they're cracked up to be. Chasing career is bullshit. What about human values? Why as a parent do I always feel stressed and pushed for time? Why is our culture built this way? Lots of people across the board are answering the question. And if I may be so presumptuous, my book is actually uh, not the answer in a biblical sense, but it comes close. Because if nine-tenths of what I'm saying here is correct, or even half, 
And if it was taken seriously by enough people, there would be a lot more happy, content people in this country. And they would be in tune with something that actually works. You don't find people at age 60 saying, God damn it. If only I'd known what I know now, I would have just spent more time in the office. I would have seen the people in my life less. I would have gotten divorced more. I would have spent less time with my children. Thank God I never see my grandchildren. You don't hear this. You hear what Letterman says now. Why didn't somebody tell me 40 years ago the truth about what actually made me content and happy? Special thanks to Frank Schaefer for joining me on this episode. What an incredibly brilliant and challenging human being. You can find out more about him on his website, which is frankschaeferblog.com. I'll put a direct link to that in the show notes. You can also order the book, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, and Save the Planet right off of that website. Of course, to support this podcast, as always, subscribe to it, give it a five-star rating, and write a review. 